You're listening to Toronto's number one real estate podcast, powered by Watson Estates. The most successful local real estate investing starts right here, right now. Here's your host, broker, investor, and social media influencer, Bradley Watson. Hey investors, Bradley here from Watson Estates, and you're listening to the largest, fastest growing podcast for Toronto real estate on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And outside of our ongoing updates, we love to bring you the best guests. And we have a wonderful one here today. Paul Moore is here. He is he has quite a long resume, but doesn't need a resume. <laughs> and just to give you some insight, he's a contributor to the Bigger Pockets podcast. He also is on Fox Business. Further, he's been involved in 85 real estate investments and exits. He's been featured on HGTV's House Hunters. And he is also an author of The Perfect Investment, Creating Enduring Wealth from the Historic Shift to Multifamily Housing. And he's also a co-host of the Wealth Building podcast called How to Lose Money. And he's been featured in over 150 other podcasts. He's a busy guy, and we're so thankful to have him here today. I think you're going to enjoy this show. Hi, Paul. How you doing? Great, Bradley. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for taking time. I know you're a really busy guy. I appreciate you uh, making time for us here up in Canada. Absolutely. Well, I love Canada. You know, I was always fascinated by Canada as a kid. I always dreamed of going there. And um, when I was in college, uh, I, I made a couple trips to Toronto, was amazed by the city. And my son and I now have taken seven trips to go fishing in Northwest Ontario. So we love your country. Well, there you go. And door is always open here. <laughs> Good. So, <laughs> so I have, I could go, we can go anywhere with this conversation because our interests as far as real estate and understanding multifamily, we have a very large audience of people who are heavily invested in across the GTA. And I'm sure many of them in the States too. So I'd love to maybe start our conversation. We can talk a little bit about multifamily. You actually, before we go there, let's tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Let's, let's, because they're not going to recognize just how significant yeah. your investments have been in multifamily. Oh, well, um, yeah. So I had an engineering degree, then an MBA, started my own company. Um, and then I sold it in Detroit. And um, 1997, I was 33. I had a, you know, a couple million dollars in my bank account. And no sense, apparently, because... I actually viewed myself, I started a nonprofit organization and I viewed myself as a full-time investor, but I actually was more of a full-time speculator. And um, I didn't know the difference between investing and speculation. And so for years, I would make a lot of money on a deal and then I would lose a lot of money on like three deals. Hmm. You know, investing is when your principal is generally safe, Bradley, and you've got a chance to make a return. And investing is usually attached to a cash flow stream. Speculating is when your principal is not at all safe and not attached to a cash flow stream, and you've got a chance to make a return. And I didn't know the difference. So when I flushed, you know, $100,000 to the bottom of a hole in North Dakota, um, I was expecting 100 times as much oil to come back. That was definitely speculating. And when I invested with a guy in Charlotte, North Carolina, who had this special way of making 3% a month, uh, and he turned out to be a scammer, and he's in jail, he's in year 18 of being in jail now, um, 
you know, I was definitely speculating, even though he advertised this cash flow that came with this, you know, I, I, I was, you know, not really doing the due diligence I should have. And so um, over the years, I learned the difference between investing and speculating and uh, ended up flipping a bunch of homes, then flipping a bunch of waterfront lots at lake, a lake in the area, and then eventually got into uh, multifamily. And I've never looked back since there. Yeah. And, and just to, to fill in the blanks too. So you have, from what I've understood, you have done things from, you've actually developed hotels. You've rehabbed and managed dozens of rental properties. You've built homes. You've developed even subdivisions. So why multifamily, I guess, is the question is, why is that the place you landed with all this experience and being able to go in any direction? Why multifamily? Yeah. And so the reason I ended up in, um, you know, in commercial real estate in general and multifamily self-storage mobile home parks would be part of that is honestly, I didn't know this at the time, I will be honest. But what I found out some point into it was that, you know, residential, single family residential, at least in the States is based on comps. The assessments of the property are based on comparable properties. And so if I bought a $200,000 house and spent $300,000 <clears> fixing it up and I had half a million in it, but it was in a $250,000 neighborhood, I would probably never get my money out of that because residential real estate in the States at least is based on comparable properties. Right. But, you know, multifamily and other forms of commercial are, um, and I consider multifamily commercial because it's not just, you know, a single family or duplex. Um, you know, it's based on a formula. And that formula is that the value is the income divided by the rate of return. And so if I can increase the net operating income, uh, then I can increase the value. And if I use safe leverage, I can increase the value much more. And so, uh, and then sometimes even shrink the cap rate, the denominator in that equation, I can increase the value much more. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I love that opportunity to be able to get the value adds and to be able to drive using math, uh, a higher income level, uh, the, uh, and, and a higher appreciation. I like both. So I like cash flowing properties first, but I, the appreciation is obviously a big bonus. This is great. This is perfect for my next question. So when you're looking now in different real estate markets, what is it you're kind of looking for? What regions do you choose? And maybe we can kind of transition from what you're saying there as well as figure out, do you look for cash flow as the primary factor? Or are you looking for equity and, and high appreciation markets as your primary factor. I'm curious how you go about making that decision as a, an investor that not just for yourself, but for a pool of high net worth clients. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're looking for cash flow first, and then we look to appreciation as a bonus. And so we like both, but <clears throat> in general, um, except for the rare exception, we're looking for properties that already cash flow day one, uh, we're also looking at the debt service coverage ratio, also known as the debt coverage ratio. And to make that real simple, that is the ratio between the net income, not including depreciation, not including taxes, not including uh, mortgage payments, just the net operating income divided by your debt service, which is obviously principal and interest payments. 
If you divide that and get a 1.25 or 1.3, 1.35 ratio, again, it's the income divided by the debt, that means you only got a 25 or 35% margin of safety between your income and your debt payments. And so the banks consider that safe. We like to look for a much, much higher ratio. I mean, if possible, we, I mean, it's fine if on day one it's 1.3, if they have a definite plan for increasing it quickly, but it better be real certain or I'm gonna be really nervous. We're looking for debt service coverage ratios of 1.6, 1.8, 2.3. Our average right now across all of our 24 properties in our, in our fund is 2.3 debt service coverage ratio. And so that is the kind of margin of safety we're looking for. Now you asked me about geography. I'm writing a book tentatively called Warren Buffett's Rules for Real Estate Investors. And this book is taking his principles and translating it from stocks and bonds and such to real estate. And we really see him as somebody who finds experts, expert local managers, expert company managers, and he um, trusts them implicitly. And he doesn't get involved in all the details. In fact, these managers sometimes don't hear from him from a long, for a long time. He's only got 26 people in his headquarters and he's like the fifth largest company in America. Um, and so basically it's very decentralized. Well, we do the same thing, Wellings, in, Wellings Income Fund. We uh, look for great operators. We spend a lot of time getting to know them and vetting them. And then we trust them to pick the assets and the geography. So I don't know anything about Medford, Oregon. I've been there to the airport, but I've never, you know, lived there. I don't know the market, but my operating partner does. And so we trust him to pick the geography. Awesome. And so I would encourage anyone that's interested in looking more into the, uh, Paul's portfolio. So it's called Welling, Wellings Capital, correct? Yep. Awesome. And um, so you're obviously managing all these portfolios and the economy is on a little bit of a, an interesting path right now. So if I were to ask you how with your portfolios, as much as it's in your purview, has COVID impacted those investments or what kind of comes next, I guess, when we look at the economy and as you're making these decisions? We're looking for recession resistant, not recession proof, but recession resistant assets. And um, COVID has so far not significantly affected any of our assets. We've got self-storage, we've got mobile home parks. Uh, we theoretically <clears throat> have multifamily, though, <clears throat> Bradley, we haven't found any multifamily for quite a while that we've invested in. But um, so far, so good. Now, I really do believe that the uh, government slot machines, did I say that? I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> uh, we, we do really believe that the government money, money printing presses have kept the... Um, you know, kept the dogs away from the door. So we think that when the government payouts slow down, maybe after the election here in November, uh, we think there's going to be a significant increase in problems. And um, we don't think we'll be immune from them. <clears throat> but the fact that we have a debt service coverage ratio 2.3, which is 130% margin of safety between the current income and the debt, we really feel comfortable that we're going to be in good shape. Awesome. Awesome. So, so as we're talking about the slot machines, 
how do you expect inflation, generally speaking? Is that, is that good or is that a bad thing for your investments? How, how do you view inflation? Well, I'm not an economist. And uh, I really am concerned more about deflation. Uh, I'm concerned <clears throat> that with restaurants going out of business in mass, hotels going out of business, uh, so many problems with resorts. I, I'm worried that there might be a deflation. Hmm. And if there's a significant deflation, the possibility that the net income versus the debt payments ratio could be really problematic. Um, Inflation, you know, I think a healthy amount of inflation is obviously healthy. I mean, Buffett says, Warren Buffett says, time is the friend of the wonderful company, the enemy of the mediocre. And so, you know, honestly, time, the reason he says that is there's natural inflation over time, which is typically two to 4%. <clears throat> and that is you know, I mean, if uh, I'm just saying, I don't know the numbers, but let's say Buffett bought American Express and Coca-Cola in 1975. Well, the value of the U.S. dollar has gone down five or five and a half X since 1975. And so just that inflation alone, I mean, that is huge. I mean, just, I mean, if he bought Coca-Cola, let's just say at $40 a share, well, just being at par value, in other words, if it hadn't gone up or down in real terms, that's $200 today. Well, that looks like a pretty good return, at least in terms of those numbers. Um, and, but he couldn't have got that if he would have been buying and selling, buying and selling, flipping in and out. Do you know if you miss the, 10, uh, the 20 best days in the stock market over the last decade, no, two decades, if you miss the 20 best days, your return would go down from like 9% to like two or something. I, I didn't know the numbers. I've heard that concept though. And I love it. Love it. Yeah. All right. So you've, you've gone through 2008. You saw far more ups and downs than we saw even up here in Canada. I'm curious what that taught you. If this is in fact, what some people think could happen in, in like a similar, any kind of similarity It'd be interesting to hear from someone who was invested in the market at that time. What did you learn? Like, what's something we should be kind of keeping our, our ears to the floor about as this is going on? Yeah, so I was speculating big time in uh, 2006 or four through eight. And so I had a whole bunch of non-cash flowing properties. And so uh, I had a massive amount of debt. I, I mean, I went from a million and a half in the bank to two and a half million in debt in 08. And so I went into 08 with this really challenging situation with, you know, no cash flow to speak of. And then all these properties, they were waterfront lots at a resort and all my eggs in one basket. So I learned a lot of top, you know, things. Number one, I want a nice margin of safety. Number two, I want cash flow instead of just appreciating properties. Number three, I don't want all my eggs in one geographic or asset type. Um, and number four, I, again, I, I really, really want to think worst case. What's the break-even occupancy, which is similar to the debt service coverage ratio just in occupancy numbers? I, I really want to realize, you know, they say stuff like, oh, it's different this time. You know, there's a book out there called It's Different This Time where they study, I think it's 13 centuries of economic ups and downs. And of course, every time it was up, somebody said, it's different this time. It's not going to go down the same time, way it did last time. And I'll tell you what, 
no matter what they say, as long as human emotions are involved, it's going to go up and down. So you talk a lot about how you're diversified your portfolio. And I think this is a great time to ask the question for self storage and mobile home parks. These are areas that you're still kind of looking at right now. Why is this a time for you? And I know you can go on for a while, but why now? Why in those areas are you interested? So we're looking for recession resistant assets. And I proved in my book, my multifamily book called The Perfect Investment, that multifamily is recession resistant. But um, self-storage and mobile home parks are as well, Bradley. And so self-storage, you know, there's 54,000 self-storage facilities in the U.S. That's the same as McDonald's, Subway, and Starbucks combined. Wow. And a whole lot of them are owned by mom and pop seller uh, owners who are willing to sell and they'd like to move on. Now, mobile home parks, likewise, 44,000 of them in the U.S. And the uh, vast majority, perhaps 90%, are owned by mom and pop owners and they're willing to sell in many cases to move on. The cool thing about both those asset classes is if it's a mom and pop seller, you can pay them a very fair price. You can give them what they're worth and you can be, you know, you can happily uh, make their day by giving them millions of dollars that they never expected to get. But at the same time, Bradley, there's tremendous upside they leave on the bone. They don't know or care or have the resources to do the upside. So for example, a mobile home park we got with 311 spaces, it's got 50 vacant spaces. Well, you know, a professional operator could fill those 50 vacant spaces and get the value up from like 7 million in this case up to 15 million by raising rents to market level, by doing some other value adds like passing utilities back and by filling those spaces, that's all pure profit. And when you get pure profit value adds, you can dramatically increase the value of an asset. And so that's why we love those asset classes. Yeah, and I can see that that's in your portfolio too. So if anyone wants to uh, contact Wellings Capital and look more into some of those investments, I think that's a great place to start. And so before we kind of move off of this idea of where there's deals for 2020, 2021, I want to ask you a question. Um, do you think that people will eventually go back to these downtown cores or do you think that this working from home and leaving the main urban centers is a long-term thing? I'm curious just to get your, your thoughts on that. I saw a podcast the other day about New York City and they were saying, uh, now I'm going to sound like the guy I just talked about a few minutes ago, but this time it's different. <laughs> they were saying seriously, though, that New York has always bounced back. And this commentator was giving a very thoughtful analysis. I think he is from New York about why it's not going to bounce back this time. And the, the analysis included the thought that, and you said it a minute ago, <clears throat> And that is, this is the only time in history that people proved they could work from home. Uh, my cousin is an executive with Red Hat, which is now owned by IBM. And he said, IBM's all working from home. And he said, they've proven in this five months that they can get more done at home than they can at the office. He was telling me about a nationwide insurance, a huge service center there in his hometown in North Carolina that had just canceled its lease because they, you know, they don't need to be in the office anymore. They found out people are happier and better workers at home. So I think there's a fundamental shift here 
And honestly, when I think about commercial, of course, office is part of that, Bradley. And I'm really, really nervous about office going right down the tubes behind retail, malls, hotels, and, uh, you know, restaurants. Interesting. Awesome. I appreciate your thoughts on that. So, all right. So let's talk about someone who's just starting out, right? You're just starting in real estate. You're trying to figure this out. Um, what are some things that you should keep in mind, especially with everything going on right now? What were, if you were kind of just starting as a new investor right now, what would be some things that you'd want someone to teach you before they take that step as an investor, specifically as an investor? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know in the Toronto area if this would be as applicable, but I would want to learn how to assume someone else's mortgage. Because if there's a lot of carnage, <clears throat> if there's a lot of people out of work, if there's a lot of people who can't pay their mortgage, if there's a lot of people who are defaulting and walking away from their house, well, if I can learn to go to them and provide a solution, hey, your house has been on the market for a couple of years and looks like it needs a lot of work. It looks like it's by this power line. It looks like your realtor took horrible photos and maybe people don't even know what a great house this is. Why don't you let me assume your mortgage? You can walk away with no bankruptcy, no, I mean, no foreclosure. And then we will take over your mortgage. We'll do a little fix up on the house, like paint the front door and, you know, cut the grass is what we've done. I remember on one house, we did this years ago. And then we turn it over to a tenant or a tenant buyer. Now, if I can build a whole portfolio of homes that I don't own the mortgage on, the previous seller did, that's quite a feat. And it's possible to get 10, 20, 30 homes or maybe more that you are controlling by paying the mortgage on, but you, <clears throat> and, and when it sells, it will be, you know, it'll, it'll go to you. The profits will go to you, but you didn't have to get the debt on it. That's the first thing I would teach a young real estate investor. I love it. And so we won't dive too far into it. So the concept there, just so that our audience is on the same page is called subject to deals which are more common in the States. There's also lease option sandwich that Paul talks about in a lot of his video content. So I'd encourage anyone who wants to learn more about that, specifically how it happens in the States. And if you can, like you're saying, convert it or translate it to how we function here in Canada, then power to you. I think that's awesome. So, so I've also heard you talk with other questions about this idea of lazy equity, or if someone, let's say, have, has a home, maybe they have 100% value in their property, they're semi-retired and they're looking for, is there an opportunity in here for me how, how do you look at that? This, what, explain maybe what is lazy equity and what would you recommend or suggest to these people and, and how much, you know, what's the loan to value they yeah. should leave or, and all that. So I don't live in a really hot area, but my house just went up a hundred thousand in value in the last few years. And so I'm getting ready to refinance because if there's an extra, let's say $80,000 in cash I can take out and borrow long-term from a bank at two point eight percent i mean that's really i mean it's i would blow your mind money. if i told you the rates we have down here i, I gotta hear this tell me down we've got a we've got some advertising like 1.6s is that right the major banks are doing 2.1 so really? i laugh when i hear the states talking about mid twos and i'm like you have no idea <laughs> that's amazing well to, to me that's free money so why not take that money <clears throat> invest it in notes invested in private mortgages, invested in something, you know, invested in a commercial real estate syndication, if you can find one you trust, uh, loan it to a house flipper, at, you know, and, and make 18% off of it, or could maybe not 18, but I mean, house flippers clearly make, they can pay you that. 
especially with the points or, or loan it to a hard money lender. You'll get 12% maybe, or go invest in a fund where you'll get 8% or 10 or 12. Um, that is a brilliant and, and to me a very obvious strategy to do that. I'm not saying go get every dime of debt you can, because that sounds like speculating again, but I would safely consider refinancing or using the equity in your home or other properties to go out and leverage yourself over more properties. Now, do you like, do you like line of credit products or do you like these uh, hard money refinance type of money? Like if you were to suggest this for someone in this area, what would you say is probably smarter or more wise? Well, um, as far as getting access to the equity, yeah, getting access and you being able to use it, like what gives them more control or allows them to take it and make money with it, you know? Yeah, no, definitely line of credit. I mean, home equity line of credit is a beautiful thing. And if I can, uh, you know, finance um, a property and have a HELOC, then I can get the access to the money without having to pay interest every month because I'm actually you know, um, I'm actually keeping it paid down till I need the money. So I get the best of both worlds. There's actually a concept too called paycheck parking, or uh, I believe it's promoted at a website called reverseyourmortgage.com or something like that. Anyway, basically you take all your paychecks, any money you get, any money you make at all, you put it against your HELOC, your line of credit, use it as a checking account, and then keep the line paid down. Well, if you can pay it down, let's say you're getting a $10,000 paycheck every month. Well, if you can chop down your mortgage for 10, by 10,000, just for a few days or weeks or months, the cumulative effect of that allows you to pay off your mortgage much, much more quickly than a 30 year. You know, if we have a 30 year loan in the States, it can be paid off in six or seven years just by being creative like that and doing that. Well, it also can be paid way down to where you can get access to that equity. If you don't want to pay it off, you know, just refinance out that lazy equity and go invest it somewhere smart. I love it. It's got to change that mindset first before you run and do that. Right. <laughs> um, so for people who, again, back to this kind of first time investor, I think this is a good question I've heard asked in some of your other content that I think is worth having here. Do you, would you suggest someone that gets a property try and kind of manage it themselves? Or would you encourage someone to hire a property manager first? Um, like, how would you usually explain that to someone just starting out? Costing, a, a, the, taking a property manager on can, you know, eat up a quarter to half of the cost, excuse me, of the net operating income. And so it sounds really pricey. But the alternative is dealing with toilets, tenants, and trash. And honestly, one deal like that in one year doing that yourself can drive you right out of the business. So all things said, I would certainly recommend a property manager. Awesome. Paul, I think this has been great. I, I'd love for you to be able to share with us, where could our audience get more information about you? I know you said you're working on a book. Where would you like our guys to find you if they have any other questions or anything like that? Yeah, just visit our website. It's wellingscapital.com. That's W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S-C-A-P-I-T-A-L, wellingscapital.com. I'm also all over bigger pockets. Awesome. Thanks again, Paul. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Bradley. Take care.